We have to understand in our world that no crisis occurs by chance. Every single one of them crossed the desk of God before they came to planet Earth. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to Daniel 2. Daniel 2, and you will find out today that this passage will illustrate the fact that there is no coincidence in history either. We're in a study in the book of Daniel. In the English Bible, the, the book of Daniel is classified among the major prophets, along with Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Daniel is an outstanding example of faithfulness to God in the face of tremendous adversity. He was born in Jerusalem, but he lived over 70 years in the city of Babylon. Little little historical context, Nebuchadnezzar's father was named Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar, he died in 605 B.C. His son Nebuchadnezzar was crowned September 7th of 605. Now Daniel was already in Jerusalem, I mean in Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar was the crown prince, he had invaded Judah for the first time and brought over Daniel and his three friends. And he had instituted a three-year government training program. He wanted really the best and the brightest of all the captive peoples that he captured to be in his government program because he was going to need the best and the brightest to run his empire. And at the beginning of the chapter today, we're going to be in Daniel 2, Daniel and his three friends have completed this three-year training program. So it's probably 603 or so B.C. They've been there about three years And as you recall from our lesson last week, God gave these three friends of Daniel and him a great deal of wisdom and insight far beyond their age cohort. And they've been appointed, at least that we know, in an apprenticeship position in the government, officialdom, if you will, and serving Nebuchadnezzar and his government. And at the very end of chapter 1, it says that God gave Daniel the ability to interpret visions and dreams And immediately, as we're going to find out today in chapter 2, Daniel's going to have an opportunity to demonstrate that ability. So let's pick up the narrative in Daniel 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural, and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And this is one of the most astonishing revelations in the Old Testament, and it's given to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. His dream, literally this chapter, reveals about 2,600 plus years of future history. So God is revealing the future outlines of human history. And God calls this period of time that we are currently in the times of the Gentiles. So that's the era that we're living in from God's point of view. Jesus actually prophesied this in Luke 21, 24. And he's talking about Jerusalem, and he says, They will fall by the edge of the sword, they will be led captive into all the nations, talking about the Jewish people, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. 
Now, the times of the Gentiles covers that era of history where the city of Jerusalem and the entire nation of Israel is under the domination of Gentiles. And that actually began in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, the city, and um, the palace of Jerusalem. And at that point in time, a major shift in world leadership occurred. Jesus prophesied in Matthew 23, he said, Jerusalem is going to remain desolate under the control and domination of Gentiles until they recognize him as their Messiah. And we know that that will not occur until the end of the Great Tribulation, after which Jesus Christ will rule on planet Earth from his capital city, Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Christ will not come back until the Jewish nation cries out and asks him to come back, and that will occur at the end of the Tribulation. So we've been living in a period of Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles from 605 B.C. till today, about 2,600 years so far. We're not sure how long that'll be because we don't know when the Lord's coming back. Now, verse 29 of this chapter tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's a new king, and he's getting a little anxious about his empire. His daddy conquered the Assyrians. He's conquered the Egyptians. He's had a lot of earthly success really quickly. And he's a young king, and he's starting to worry about what's going to happen to his empire after he's gone, and God gave him the answer in a dream. The, the Bible uses the word plural, dreams. So we don't know if it was just one dream repeated over and over again, or it was one of several, but this particular dream caused him such anxiety he could not fall asleep. This was not too many chili rellenos the night before. This was actually uh, like y'all, you know, when you have that extra thing, ice cream and you think it was a dream, it's the ice cream. Well, in this case, it was really the dream, all right? Verse 2, the dream was so profound that it precipitated a governmental crisis. Verse 2, the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Then the king said, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And we have to define who's here. This is really the core of the advisors that the king uses to help him make decisions. And they're a really motley crew. The magicians are really occultic fortune tellers. They're people that try and predict the future. We got all kinds of them today. They tell you they can predict the future from all sorts of things. Conjurers or enchanters are people that communicate with the dead or at least they tell you they communicate with the dead, right? Sorcerers or spiritualists, these are mediums. These are people who consult with demons, they practice witchcraft, they cast spells. And the Chaldeans, that was actually a region in the southern part of this realm, they're astrologers. They study the heavens, and then they try and foretell the future. Now, there's a difference between astronomers and astrologers. Astronomers study the movements of the stars, the structure, etc., etc., and that's science. Astrology studies the same movements and then tries to predict the future based on the movement of the stars. That ain't science, okay? That's what he's got in front of him. They're pretty much an occultic advisory council. Nebuchadnezzar's inherited these from his father, Nabopolassar, because he's only been king now about three years. As you're going to find out, Nebuchadnezzar is pretty convinced that most of this gang are frauds. He's pretty convinced his advisory council, he's got a lot of government workers that aren't working, right? 
They're giving him lots of chatter about what's going to be, but he's, they can't cut the mustard. So he's going to put a test together to find out who the frauds are and who really can get the job done since they're on his payroll. So he says, you're going to tell me the dream and tell the interpretation. Verse 4, this whole group says to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 5, the command from me is firm, irrevocable. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb. That would be motivation. And your houses will be made of rubbish heap. Verse 9, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Now, at this point in time, the text switches to Aramaic, which is the common language of the Babylonian Empire. Before this, has been in Hebrew. And advisors really are saying, look, if you tell us the dream, we'll invent an interpretation for you. And, and it's relatively easy once you know a dream. You can, create, you can create a story. We call it today a narrative, right? There's lots of narratives running around about what the, how the world really works. They're narratives. They may or may not be true, but they're narratives. Well, that's what they're going to do here. Nebuchadnezzar says, well, hang on. If you really can predict the future like you've been claiming, you should at least be able to tell me my past dream. So if I'm going to trust your interpretation, I'm going to test your competency by seeing if you can tell me the dream, and by the way, I know it. So you can't make this stuff up. They need to prove the accuracy of their interpretation by telling the dream himself, and he says, if you succeed, I'm going to reward you, but if not, you're going to be torn limb from limb. That's not a figure of speech. What they did is they would get four trees, they'd plant these things, they'd get four trees and they'd bend the tops together. You got four trees in a square. You bend the tops together, you tie the tops of the trees together, so you got a kind of a teepee, and then you tie one arm to one tree, one arm to another tree, one foot and one foot. And then they cut the rope that ties the trees together, and the trees spring back, and they rip your arms and your legs from your body. There are probably easier ways to die. Just saying. So when he says, tear you from limb to limb, that's not a figure of speech. That's really how they did the deal. And then they turn your house into an outhouse, you know, a public latrine. So he accuses them of trying to stall for time, because they keep saying, well, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, you're trying to stall for time. What you're hoping is that I'll forget about this thing. What you're hoping is I'll get busy with some other matters of government and give you time to get out of Dodge before I take your heads off, right? And even further, in the next couple of verses, he says, I know you're conspiring together to lie to me. This is one of the key problems of anybody in leadership. The key problem of anybody in leadership is how do you know what the truth is? Because the people that work for you will always tell you what you want to hear, right? Just like your children would, did when they were younger, they always knew what you wanted to hear, and they would tell you what you wanted to hear. So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't trust the truthfulness of these groups because their prophecies were always so ambiguous that they could always make it sound good, Right? So he doesn't believe in the competency of his own staff, and so he says, this is going to be your test. You've got to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And now we're going to see how they operate with this. Verse 10, 
This whole group, the Chaldeans, they answer the king and they say, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter to the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean, moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there is no one else who could declare to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now, they finally get around to telling the truth. No mortal man can predict the future. That's their job description, to predict the future. That's what they've been telling him for the last three years. We can predict the future. And that's what he's paying them to do, right? And they say, by the way, it's really unfair that you should ask us to predict the future, even though we've been collecting a paycheck to do this for the last three years. So the king's saying, well, everything you told me the last three years has been a fraud, right? You've just been making it up. Well, we know that. The truth is accurate knowledge about the future only comes from somebody outside the space-time continuum. That's called God, the God of the Bible who controls space and time. Because of this, in verse 12, the king becomes indignant. Now, that's really an understatement. He's hot, very furious, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, all of them. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill him. You know, you really don't want to get on the bad foot with this guy. Truly, it's not good for your health. He's frightened by his dreams, and he's furious that he's been lied to by his advisors, so he gives orders to execute all of them in the city of Babylon. Not the entire empire, but the city of Babylon. Now that includes Daniel and his three friends. They're in this cohort because they just got appointed in positions of government service. And this will be a public execution for, for you know, public entertainment. They didn't do this privately behind closed doors. It was, you know, we're going to see it. So we have a pretty serious crisis here for the empire. Nebuchadnezzar is about ready to execute the bulk of the advisory service that helps him run the empire. Now, some of these are frauds, but some of them are competent administrators, and he's going to knock them all off at the same time. And this is a crisis designed by God, precisely for his purposes. God is going to use this crisis to reveal the incompetence of human wisdom. He's going to reveal the incompetence of idolatry, and he's going to prepare the king to listen to God through his servant Daniel. The king's own wise men have just admitted that this dream can only be revealed and understood by God. We have to understand in our world that no crisis occurs by chance. Do you think our world has a number of crises? Um, there's a few going around. Every single one of them crossed the desk of God before they came to planet Earth. And they were all allowed by him to accomplish his purposes. So when you hit a crisis in your private life, or the planet hits a crisis by and large, pandemic or whatever, that doesn't occur by chance. That occurs by design, and God is going to use that to accomplish his divine purposes. Go to verse 14. 
Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hanai, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his three friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Here's the principle. Pride keeps most people from praying because prayer is a declaration of dependence on God. Pride keeps most people from praying because prayer is a declaration of dependence on God. So the king has ordered all the wise men to be executed. They go knocking on Daniel's door. Daniel's a wise man. They say the captain of the king's bodyguard, that's the king's executioner. This is the, this is the chief executioner. He knocks on the door, and Daniel does not panic. Daniel is calm and composed. Daniel asks questions before he makes statements. I'm going to recommend that that would be a really good strategy. It's very easy for us to offer our opinion about issues without knowing what we're talking about. Daniel asks questions so we can understand the nature of the situation. He says, how come this is so urgent? Why does he want to kill everybody by this afternoon? Well, Daniel must have been pretty well thought of because the executioner tells him the whole story, what went on. And this 18-year-old Jewish captive, Daniel's about 18 now, about as mature as you and I were at that stage, he asks for and he gets a personal audience with a very angry king. Now that would require a fair amount of courage, right? He's going to the king and saying, give me time and we will give you the interpretation of this dream and we'll tell you the dream itself which is based on an absolute belief that God is either going to come through and give him the dream and the interpretation, or he's going to be dead. And his three friends as well. And by God's providence, Nebuchadnezzar gave him time. So Daniel then goes home, and he does what you would probably do too. They have a prayer meeting. I expect that they probably stayed up all night. This was probably pretty intense, because if you don't get an answer from God, you will be dead, probably within a very short order at that point in time. So the Chaldeans, they worship the heavens. Daniel and his three friends worship the God who created the heavens. And here we see an interesting balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign to control the outcome. We're responsible to pray. We're responsible to come to God with our needs and our, well, our hopes, our desires, our fears, etc., etc. So both God and man have a part here. James tells us the effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Most people regard prayer as a last resort. I mean, you pray when there's nothing left. You pray when you've come to the end of your rope. You pray when you've tried two years of chemo and nothing's working. Daniel prays first, and as we're going to find out at the beginning of the end of this book, Daniel is a prayer warrior, has a habit, a custom of praying on a regular basis. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream. God gave Daniel 
the dream and the interpretation in a vision to accomplish his purpose. How does Daniel respond to getting the answer? What's fascinating is he doesn't say, thank you, Lord, so that I don't have to die. Which you would think would be a good thing to say, right? I mean, you saved my bacon, I'm going to love. But he responds with a God-centered thanks, not a self-centered thanks. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him, and it is he who changes the time and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power, even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Here's the principle. Praise is always the right response to the God who causes and controls all things. Praise is always the right response to the God who causes and controls all things. So Daniel, first of all, praises God for his omnipotence. God directs history. Uh, it's, it's interesting. The Babylonians were very fatalistic, very deterministic. They thought that the movement of the stars controlled history on planet Earth. Daniel prayed to the God who created the stars and who directs the stars. So Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the one who controls the stars. History is in his hands. History is actually his story, history. So Daniel praises God for his omnipotence and his omniscience. He knows everything. God is the one who gives wisdom, knowledge, reveals things that can't be discovered. I am amazed at how many things I do before I ask for help from God. You ever done that? You can't find something. Your keys. How many hours or days will you look for before you pray? And I'm embarrassed at how, how I try and do it on my own, and after I run into three box canyons, then I go, Lord, maybe I need to, maybe you know where it is? You think he knows where it is? You can say yes, I think he knows where they are. We'll find them sooner or later, right? So Daniel goes to the executioner, and he says, don't kill all the wise men of Babylon. See, that's not what I would have done. I would have said, you know, I've got the answer, Let's hang around for 24 hours. We can wipe out all the competition. Nebuchadnezzar will kill all these schmucks, and you know, we'll be only godly people will be left. I mean, wouldn't that be real politic? I mean, that would make sense. He doesn't say that because he's compassionate. He says, Don't kill anybody. God has revealed to me the interpretation. Bring me to the king, and I'll give him the interpretation. So this is drama. I mean, this is really a dramatic setting at that point. I mean, the stage is set for Yahweh, the God of Israel, to reveal himself as the only true God and to show up these Babylonian Satan worshipers as frauds. And that's exactly what happened. Daniel gets before the king, and in verse 26, the king says to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Verse 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, Neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mystery has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me and any more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king so that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Here's the principle. Always give God the credit for what he does through you. Always give God the credit for what he does through you. See, both Arioch and Nebuchadnezzar think Daniel is the solution. He's the bright guy who can solve our problem. Daniel tells them God is the solution. I'm not the solution. When God enables us to accomplish what he's called us to do, who should get the glory? It is terribly easy to think that we're smarter than we really are, especially when the Lord makes something happen. And we go, whoa, that really worked. It didn't really work because we're really smart. It worked because we had divine help, right? The Holy Spirit within us at that point in time. By the way, we're breathing his air right now. Try that without it, you know? I mean, everything comes from him. So God gives Nebuchadnezzar the dreams. It was planned. Daniel says, God's going to tell you what you were thinking about before you went to sleep. You were anxious about the empire, weren't you? Now, who knows your thoughts besides God? No other human being knows what you're thinking, which is probably a really good thing, actually. But God knows. And Nebuchadnezzar was anxious, and God told him that. And he says, he's going to tell you what's going to happen in the latter days. Now, in the Bible, this phrase, the latter days, almost always is talking about the second coming of Christ's earth, after the time of the Gentiles have ended. So the question is, why does God give Nebuchadnezzar this dream? I mean, what's the point? Why would he reveal it? Well, first of all, God's exposing the Babylonian religious wise men as frauds, and their false religion as frauds. And God is demonstrating that he is the only true God. One of the ways that God demonstrates his authenticity is he predicts the future and makes it happen. The Bible is filled with predictive prophecy where God says, this is going to happen, and then he makes it happen. There's over 700 prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah, and a good chunk of them have been fulfilled. And there's a large number of prophecies related to his second coming, and they will be fulfilled, and we know that because God fulfilled the first batch. The third reason God gives this, this dream is God's got his people in captivity. And God made a lot of promises to Israel. And they're in captivity for disobedience. And they got to be wondering, what's going to happen to us? God made all these promises. Are these really going to happen, or are we stuck here, right? God gives this dream, among other things, and shows the future because he wants his people to understand that he's not done with them. That his promises will, in fact, be kept to them. So, let's unpack the dream, and then we'll unpack the interpretation. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer flushing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Rob's going to show you a one rendition. There's lots of renditions of this. So this statue is huge. Its appearance is large. It's a statue of a man. And it's appropriate because this is an age where men are, quote, ruling the planet, and it represents all the human pride and rebellion of God. It was made of four metals. The head's made of gold, the chest and arms are silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet and the toes partly iron, partly clay. Notice that the statue gets less valuable as you go from head to foot, right? It also gets less stable. By the way, the specific gravity of gold is 19. When I say specific gravity, it means how much more dense it is than water. Water has a specific gravity of 1. Gold is 19 times more dense than water. So when I say a specific gravity of 19, it means it's 19 times denser than water. Silver is 11 times, brass is 8.5, iron is 7.8. So they become less valuable as you go from top to bottom. They become less dense, and they get harder. Iron's a whole lot harder, if you will, than, than gold. So the statue's top-heavy, right? The dense stuff's on top and heaviest elements on the top, and we're going to see that this human statue constructed by human hands is destined for destruction without human hands because there's a stone not cut out by human hands, strikes the statue, crushes it all at once, and crushes it in pieces as small as chaff. Chaff is... When you thresh grain, you want the seeds, right? The chaff is what's left over. It's all the, considered fairly worthless, and it's very light. It's, it literally can be blown away by the wind, and God says the pieces of the statue are going to be so small that the wind's just going to blow them, and there'll be no trace left of this statue when this stone gets done. Now, in the Bible, stone or rock always refers to God or Jesus Christ. Jesus is a stone which the builders rejected, became the cornerstone. And the stone cut out without hands says, this is the eternal origin of Jesus Christ, not man-made, eternal and divine. Verse 36, this was the dream, now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Now the word interpretation here means to untie. It means to unloosen a knot. There's a knot called the mystery, the, the dream, and we're going to unloosen that knot. We're going to unravel the mystery of this dream and try and solve it. Daniel now tells the king, I've told you the dream. You've got to imagine Nebuchadnezzar's jaws on the floor now because this guy, this 18-year-old, foreign, captive Jew, has told the king of the most powerful realm in the world what he was thinking about and what he dreamed about. He's got to be impressed. Verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, this kingdom will crush and break all those in pieces. 
in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As for the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So the statue represents four distinct kingdoms. The stone represents the final kingdom. Here's the principle. And this is very, very applicable to us today. The lifespan and geography of every nation is predetermined according to God's eternal plan. The lifespan and geography of every nation is predetermined according to God's eternal plan. We know that because God tells us in Acts 17, 26, and he, God, made from one, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek God. So we all believe, everybody believes, that the land they live in, the country they live in, has been here forever and will last forever. Not true in the slightest. Every nation has a date of birth and a date of death. No nation lasts forever. God moves the centroid of power around the planet. It happened to be in the West since the Industrial Revolution. That's changing in front of our face right now. So people that get, uh, shall we say, um, complacent, I would say that's delusional. The statue represents multiple kingdoms that are going to arise in the future. Four Gentile empires are going to arise that will rule over Israel and over the earth. This statue is not only multi-layered metal, it's a time machine. The further you go down the statue, the further you go forward into history. It's a progressive time machine of empires that rise and fall, and the kingdoms deteriorate as we go. And in the end, there's a disintegration. So we have four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and later on, we'll see a reformed Roman Empire. We're going to cross-check this with Daniel 7 in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. So God says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And I gave you your authority. He is a monarch. A monarch is ruled by a king or a queen, usually subject to some religious or hereditary restrictions. You usually inherit that role. Babylon was a city that was known for gold. They put everything in gold. Actually, their chief god, Marduk, was considered the god of gold. So God says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold on the statue. The Babylonian Empire is the head of this statue. You can do whatever you want. You can even order the murder of a whole class of your governmental officials and get away with it. Babylonian Empire lasted 70 years. 605 to 536. Some of you would live long enough to see the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire if you could stay out of Nebuchadnezzar's way. The empire that succeeded Babylon was the Medo-Persia Empire. We're going to read about that later in Daniel. It represented the chest and arms of silver. And this empire was an autocracy. An autocracy is a rule by one person without any restrictions whatsoever. 
no restraints. And when you look at some of the Persian emperors, you see exactly that. Now, silver is less valuable than gold. So this empire is going to be lower in power and stature. And as we go down the statue, we're going to see that. The statue had two arms. You have two divisions of this kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, conveniently represented by two arms. The Persian Empire lasted 200 years, 536 to 331. And then this guy named Alexander came along and cleaned their clock. The Medo-Persian Empire was never as unified as the Babylonian Empire, even though it was significantly larger. The belly and thighs of bronze represented the Greek Empire, succeeded the Persian Empire. Now, bronze is harder than silver or gold. The Greeks were armed with bronze shields, bronze swords, bronze helmets, and Alexander conquered most of the known world all the way to India, died in his early 30s from alcohol poisoning, and he lamented that there were no more worlds to conquer. He literally ran most of the known world. Greece was a statocracy, which means ruled by military force. They were a military machine like the Spartans, and that's how, that, that's how they ran life at that point in time. It was weaker in character, but it was much stronger militarily. Alexander died, in, uh, as I mentioned, and his empire was divided among four generals. They asked him on his deathbed, who should inherit the empire? He said, give it to the strong, because he knew only the strong would seize it. He had four generals divided four ways. Only two of them turned into dynasties, the Egyptian Ptolemies and the Syrian Seleucids. So they had two real branches of, of this Greek empire. And, of course, we have two thighs on this statue, which is interesting. The Greek empire lasted a little bit less than 200 years, 331 to 146 B.C. Now, the statue's iron legs represented the Roman Empire. Iron is stronger than all the other metals. And Rome was a military machine. They conquered wherever they went. They struck terror. They slaughtered. They enslaved all our captives. And they funded the entire empire with captured treasure. And you think, boy, that's barbaric. We do the same thing. Right? You want oil to run your economy? I guess you better go where the oil is. We've had a foreign policy built on acquisition of natural resources around the world for the last, oh, century or so. See, we see it in other nation states. We don't see it in our nation state. It's fascinating. The Roman Empire, the Roman Republic, it began as a republic. It began to morph into an empire about 146 B.C. with Carthage. And in 63 B.C., it really turned into an empire. And this western half of the Roman Empire lasted until 476, about 500 years, actually close to 600. The eastern half of the Roman Empire, headquartered in Constantinople, lasted until 1453. Interestingly, Rome was never conquered by any other nation. They collapsed from within. They fell apart from within. So we have the head, the chest, the belly, the thighs, the legs, and now we get to the feet. The feet were iron mixed with clay. Now, just in case you're, you don't know this, clay is a different substance than iron, right? And it's brittle. Dried clay is very brittle, very fragile, and it doesn't adhere with iron. It makes for a very unstable footing. So the clay weakens the feet and the toes, 
And the clay mixed with iron probably represents various worldviews, nationalities, cultures, religions, races, forms of government that don't adhere to one another. So what Daniel is saying, what God is saying, this final world empire is going to be characterized by fragmentation, division, political fracturing, tribalism. Does any this sound familiar? Kind of, sort of, you know? And the only thing that holds this final empire together is force, brute force. Now, we do know that Scripture teaches very clearly the Antichrist will be head of an international coalition of nations at the very end. And he will unite the people of the earth against the rule of Christ, and he will do it by force, brute force. We know that's coming. Now Daniel says, okay, we've gone through the four human kingdoms, and we've seen each of them rise and fall. We mentioned last week that the U.S. has been around about 245 years, which is longer than four of these empires, right? Nations exist only according to the predetermined plan of God to fulfill God's purpose for that nation. And when a nation ceases to fulfill God's purpose for it, they disappear from the world stage. According to God's eternal purpose. We need to remember that. That also works individually. You are here only by God's grace. And God has you here to do specific things that he's called you to do. When your work is done on planet Earth, you will no longer be here. You will be in heaven. Because your work here is done. So our job is to say, Lord, if you've given me breath today, you've given me a job description today. What do you want me to do today? How can I please you? How can I honor you? Who do you want me to touch today? Who are you going to put in my life today? Right? How can we sing like Fred sang this morning? For those of you that weren't out of that church, Fred, you blessed us, brother. Accomplishing the purposes God called him to do and God called you to do. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw a stone was cut out from the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Here's the principle. Human kingdoms rise and fall, but God's kingdom will endure forever. Human kingdoms rise and fall, but God's kingdom will endure forever. Now he says those kings and the days of those kings. He's talking about the kingdom of the Antichrist in the final world kingdom that will be ruled, all the kingdoms and nation states that are affiliated with that. He said when Jesus Christ comes, he's the stone, he's the rock, that's going to crush and end all human kingdoms. When he comes back at his second coming and rules the earth from Jerusalem during the millennium kingdom, all earthly kingdoms will submit to his authority. See, right now we have ah, roughly 200 nation states 
all of which think that they're special and unique and they should have the preeminence. We're headed for a dictatorship. We're actually headed for a theocracy. Theo means God. A theocracy is ruled by God. When Jesus returns to earth, he doesn't come in to take sides. He comes in to take over. So when he comes to earth to rule from Jerusalem, he's not asking other people's opinion. He doesn't need human counselors. He's going to say, this is what's going to be done. Now we know from the millennial reign, which we studied during the period of Isaiah a few months ago, that humans are not always going to be interested in doing what God tells them to do, right? So scripture says he's going to rule the earth with a rod of iron, which means that when you disobey the king who's going to rule from Jerusalem, you will be disciplined by the king who rules from Jerusalem, but he will accomplish his purposes on planet Earth. And he's accomplishing his purposes even now. And I, I, I kind of camp on this because I think it's actually utterly imperative that we understand that nothing happens without the foreknowledge and the counsel and approval of God. Because you're looking at a lot of evil on the planet. It seems extremely clear that we need to wake up and understand that we're going through a phase shift. This is not business as usual. This is not simply a continuation. This is a significant deterioration, moral deterioration, where in God's grace, he is saying to us, you want it your way? Have it your way. Live with the consequences of your decision to reject my rule. And when you get that, you wind up with chaos and lawlessness which is increasing, right? And immorality, which is increasing. This should not surprise us. Which means we as Christians have an even more obvious job description. To be salt and light in a decaying culture. Amen? Because it is decaying. That's pretty clear at that point in time. And Daniel says, when Jesus comes back, the rule of man will be utterly destroyed. When he talks about the statue being turned into chaff, he says, when Jesus Christ comes to rule, human reign over the earth is done. You will have no more human governments. You will have no more human kings. You will have no more parliaments or democracies or Congress or anything like that. You're going to have a rule of Jesus Christ on planet earth. And that mountain, which represents God's kingdom, will dominate the entire world. And by the way, God's kingdom is the terminal kingdom on planet earth. There won't be another one. Now, we know that obviously this event lies in the future. So this chapter gives us, at least thus far, about 2,600 years of Gentile domination of planet Earth. We've seen the empires, and there's clearly a gap between the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the kingdom of the Antichrist. We're in that prophetic gap. We'll talk a lot about that here in the next few weeks at that point in time. But God revealed the future to Nebuchadnezzar so that he could live in light of it. Unfortunately, he hasn't, and he won't for a few more chapters. God tells this to us for exactly the same reason. So we can live in light of the truth that we do now know. And he tells us the future to give us confidence that he's in control. And we should not lose heart. We should keep our faith on him and not in human culture at that point. If your faith is in human governments. Human governments are going to pass away. 
If your faith is in human authority, God calls you to submit to it insofar as they don't command you to do what Scripture forbids or forbid you to do what Scripture commands, human governments are going to pass away. All of them. We need to live in light of that reality. We need to build our life on Jesus Christ, the rock whose kingdom will last forever. So the application here is not just to Daniel, not just to Nebuchadnezzar, not just to the Jews, but it's very much relevant to us today who live in a period of time where it's pretty clear that God is doing something and he's given us an implication and indication of that already in Daniel. Okay, let's summarize. First one, pride keeps most people from praying because prayer is a declaration of dependence on God. When you pray, you're saying, Lord, I need help because I can't do this. God, I am worshiping you instead of worshiping myself. I'm praising you and declaring my need for you. Number two, praise is always the right response to the God who causes and controls all things. The implication is there's nothing in your life that happens without being allowed and planned and controlled by God. And that should give you and I great comfort and great peace. Number three, when God acts through you, in you, around you, give him the credit. Don't take it yourself. Daniel was always careful to give God the credit. Number four, the lifespan and geography of every nation is predetermined to accord to God's eternal plan. Now, we don't always know what God's eternal plan is or the timing of it. So we are to walk by faith that no matter what happens on the geopolitical scene or what happens in our state or what happens in our nation, our neighborhood, God is in control and we need to live in light of that. And number five, human kingdoms will rise and fall, but God's kingdom will endure forever. And on that basis, we need to live with confidence. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.